Well, you may have heard of the term coup d'etat. It's a French word meaning stroke of state. This is the overthrow of an existing government, often by military or by police. The idea is to take a small group and win back or win over power. These words, coup d'etat, they first gained prominence in the days of Napoleon, where he successfully brought about power by using this coup. Now, there are different types of coup. There's the palace coup. That's one faction within a power grid that turns upon another to win power. There's something called the soft coup. It's more of a bloodless takeover. There's something called the legal coup. That's where judges are used to bring about a certain result. And there's something called the perpetual coup. Admittedly, it's a term I'm inventing today. I use it to describe the ongoing rebellion of mankind against God. Our message this morning comes from Psalm chapter 2. It's a psalm about a perpetual coup. And this psalm begins with the nations raging against God. And in response to this, God will raise up his king. It will conclude in a way that we might not think that it would, but on second thought, it concludes very much in a way that we know God would act. This psalm this morning is going to explain some things and settle some things and clarify some things for us. First, this psalm will explain part of the problem, at least one aspect we see in the world today. And I think this is really important because how we respond to the problems in our world really depends upon the problem. In other words, if we misdiagnose the problem, if we misunderstand what's going on, we probably can't successfully respond to it. If we get it right, our response can be effective. So before walking down a a path of solutions to the problems in the world around us, we need to have an accurate scriptural understanding of those problems. Well, Psalm 2 is going to point us down that correct path. This psalm, secondly, is going to settle our hearts. This morning, surveying the landscape around us, it looks like God's enemies, they have all the power. And as they have this power and as they apply it and accumulate it, it looks like they are winning. Well, this psalm's going to challenge that way of thinking. This psalm's going to teach us that what is seen or what is perceived, well, that's not the whole story. And this psalm, thirdly, is going to clarify for you and I biblical Christianity. What it means, in other words, to be on God's side. Just because God has installed his king doesn't mean that all is well for everyone. No, God has specific instructions on how one must approach the king. And if we're going to move from being God's enemies to God's allies, we must understand his terms for peace. This psalm, through four speakers this morning, teaches us how to come to the king. I want to read this psalm in its entirety, and I want to observe these four different voices as we work our way through. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, verses 1 through 3, we begin with the howl of rebellion. And this is one of the four speakers who will speak. 
Verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We now have a second voice. This is a declaration of dominion. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. A third voice now weighs in. This is the cry of victory in verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And our fourth and final voice proclaims an invitation, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. We'll begin with our first speaker this morning in verses 1 through 3. It's his howl of rebellion. Better said, it's their howl of rebellion. Verse 1, you notice, begins with a question. And the one asking the question seems to be somewhat mystified or dumbstruck or appalled at what's happening. Do these people, these rebels of these first few verses, do they not know God? Do they not know that God is benevolent and that God is kind, that God is all-wise and God is all-knowing and that God is merciful and God is gracious? Are they not aware that this is who God is? Why do these nations rage? Why do they conspire? God, after all, created the nations. Paul says in Acts 17 that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. I mean, in that verse there, you hear not only that God created these nations, but that he chooses where they will reside and for how long they will reside there. But what's the response to this? to this benevolent and powerful God. The nations rage. They seek a coup. They devise, my Bible says. If you look into Psalm 1, it's the same word used, translated as meditates. These nations gather together and they spend time giving great thought to this plan. They're engaging in counsel. The word can even have to do with a a low murmuring, a low complaining. 
And if you notice as well in these first few verses, they're getting excellent participation in this plan. Everyone seems to be swept up in this. There's a variety of words used to cover just about everyone. There are nations and peoples. There are kings and rulers. They're all getting together on this. They defy God. They seek to overthrow God. This is the audacity of Goliath as he went out and stood before the people of God in the fields. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and he took his stand. It's that same type of defiant rebellion that Goliath exhibited. We find that in Psalm 2 among these kings. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So here the Lord has established someone called, quote, his anointed. In the Bible, to anoint someone is to to take a a, a ram's horn and fill it with oil and dump it down someone's head. You would do this for a king or a priest or a prophet. In fact, all of those examples are in Scripture. And this act, it's meant to set someone apart, someone special for a very unique purpose or very particular role. Someone would be anointed. In the context of our psalm today, it has to do with coronation, where royalty is installed in a position like a king. Now, surely, this pertains in Psalm 2 to David. Over in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, Peter's going to be preaching. And when he does, he's going to quote this psalm saying that David wrote it. Now, often we're accustomed to this, our psalms begin by telling us who wrote them. It might say in your Bible, Psalm 2, uh, a psalm of David or of Asaph or something like that. This psalm doesn't have that, so right away in the psalms, we don't really know who wrote it. Well, Peter had some inside information on this, and under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he identified David as the author. We know then that David had enemies, putting ourselves in David's shoes, imagining him as the author. They took their stand against David, but notice that they also took their stand against the Lord. However, is this psalm limited to just David? In other words, is David penning his own experience and and that alone? I would say no, it's not limited to, to David alone. This may even apply to all of Israel's kings, or Judah's kings, as the case may be. These other kings that are installed by God throughout Israel's history. Each of these kings would enjoy blessings as they obeyed God, as they were faithful to God's word, or each of these kings would suffer curses as they disobeyed God, or as they ruled in accord with their own will. But even more than that, there is a king that this applies to. And you get a hint in the Hebrew word for anointed. It's pronounced Mashiach. It's a Greek word in the New Testament. We'll see it in the New Testament as Christ or Messiah. And by the way, this psalm, compared to other psalms, is perhaps the most quoted throughout the New Testament. And for good reason. Psalm 2, I believe, applies to Jesus the King as well. 
In Acts 4, Peter boldly identifies the pagan leaders of this psalm as the Jewish leaders who crucified the Christ. And God the Father will announce Jesus as his son at his baptism using this psalm. In Antioch, Paul cites Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus. And John quotes chapter 2, verse 9, three times in Revelation. In summary, the anointed in this psalm, it is David, but it goes beyond David. And it goes beyond the other kings. The anointed of the Messiah would be none other than Jesus of Nazareth. That means then, as we read this psalm this morning, we need to read it with two lenses. We need to have the lens that sees this psalm as written by King David, applied to King David in his world. But we also need to understand that there's a greater fulfillment through that second lens of Jesus the King. And we'll do that as we move forward. So these rulers are taking their counsel against God and they're taking their stance against Jesus. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. This imagery is of two oxen or some cattle working in the fields. You can imagine a a yoke, a wooden yoke, holding the two of them together so that they're operating on the same plane. And then there's these ropes or cords coming back to someone who's directing them. Here, these rulers, they want to throw off these ropes. These rulers here want to throw off the guidance of God. They perceive God's ways as a burden. They perceive God's law as a burden. It's binding and confining. It's restrictive. And we might do well to pause here for a moment to consider that claim. I mean, just step back into the Old Testament for a moment. Isn't God's law constrictive? I mean, isn't dragging my goat to be sacrificed for my sins, isn't that a burden? Isn't it a burden to travel to Jerusalem for another festival for the third time this year? Isn't it a burden to to celebrate the Sabbath every week? I mean, there's a lot of work involved to rest for a day. Well, the Bible answers that no, the law really isn't a burden. For Israel, under this covenant of the law, Deuteronomy speaks to the intended blessings that must come from it, or intended to come from it. It was given to bless the nation, not to burden her. Admittedly, the kings here, they're they're clamoring to reject God and throw off his law. I know that these kings aren't necessarily Israel, but at the same time, God's law would be meant to bless them. I mean, think about Psalm 119. It's going to be the longest of our psalms. And what's the author doing there? He's listing out, he's enumerating all of the blessings of the law. The law was meant to keep one from sinning against God. The law was meant to counsel and strengthen. The law was meant to give hope and comfort and even understanding. And the law was meant to deliver joy and mercy and salvation. But these rulers, they do not want the law. They don't want God. They don't want Jesus. They want autonomy. The rulers want 
independence. They want a freedom from God. They want to do things their way, saying essentially, I am a God. And we see this in our world today. We see many setting themselves up against God as little gods, lower G. What do they say? We want to control our world. We're going to control the climate. We're going to control who lives and who dies, even down to the womb. All of us are little gods. We can determine our own gender. Male and female, each of us gets to determine that because we are gods. This autonomy, this begins to explain and answer the reason that we have the problems we have today. Because men and women do not want to come in under God's rule. And they do not want to live as subjects to the one true king. People seek independence from God. They want to throw off this law and God's will and even God himself. When verses 4 through 6 now, the Lord will respond to this. I'm calling this a declaration of dominion. It's an immediate response to what's going on in the first three verses. Here the description of the Lord is going to reveal who's really in charge. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God sits in the heavens, verse 4. And that's a very interesting contrast to where the kings reside. They reside upon the earth. It's the eternal heavens versus the temporal earth. These kings, they are clamoring, they're conspiring. But Psalm 144, verse 4 says, Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. The kings down here, they are not real gods. They may think that they are, but they're not. You know what they're like? They're like an agitated anthill. Did you ever see that when you step on ants and they start moving around all crazy? There's a lot of activity, but nothing's really going on. That's this image here. These scheming against God, that's the level at which they operate compared to the glory of an eternal God. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. The Bible says that God sits in the heavens and he laughs. We know there's different kinds of laughter. There's the nervous laugh. There's the cruel laugh. That's where you laugh at your friend who gets hurt. There's the roar. That's the uncontrollable laugh. Or there's the courtesy laugh when something's not really funny. And then there's the no chance laugh. This is where an opponent says something so ridiculous that one cannot help but laugh. And that's the laugh of the Lord in this psalm. There's no chance. He's unmoved by the plans of these kings. His plan is unfazed by their scheming. They may get together on their alliances and their politics and their coups, but he scoffs. He mocks those who think they will overturn his plan. 
the psalmist, even in a way, has acknowledged the distance between who he is and who they are in the word he uses to describe God. The word for Lord in verse 4 is the word Adonai, the title of absolute authority. You'll notice the word is different than the rest of the words for Lord in your psalm. This is not Yahweh, that's all caps, L-O-R-D. This is capital L, lowercase O-R-D, Adonai. And the, the, the communication here is that there's this plotting against this sovereign God of the universe, this Adonai, and it results in laughter and scoff. And of course, we've read that he installs his own king in this castle. Now remember, we're going to use two lenses as we move through this psalm here. In the original context, in the days of King David, this would refer to King David and to similar kings. But we also know that the New Testament ascribes this psalm to Jesus Christ. So Jesus is also installed as king. And verse 6 begins with a very strong contrast between who God is and what God does, and then those kings, these ants going crazy on their hill. But I, but as for me, says the psalm. These kings in verses 1 through 3, they may plot and they may plan, but the Lord's not going to be thwarted. In sports, the team's going to get together at halftime, right? They're going to spend some time thinking about what happened in the first half, coming up with a plan. I took the boys to an indoor soccer game last night, and when things were going bad for a team, they called a timeout and said, we need to get together over here to come up with a plan. This isn't going so well. This happens in sports. We need to readjust. We need to reassign. God never operates that way because it doesn't matter what the kings are doing. God's plan is on track. God's king is installed. God's plan is on schedule. In verse 6, he's going to move ahead with his own plan. He's got his own king. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's just another word for Jerusalem. Zion, it originally meant the temple area of Jerusalem, but eventually it meant to, be, to mean the whole city of Jerusalem. And the city rises above other landforms, so it's called a holy mountain. And we'll see that in the next few weeks as we look at the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph, they travel up to Jerusalem. It's at a higher elevation. It's a holy mountain. So in verses 3 through 6, we get this declaration of dominion. Adonai, immediately, he turns around and he responds to this coup attempt. It's a great reminder of of who is really in charge. And it's a good reminder of of how God views his enemies. It makes his enemies look like fools. It reminds me of, of a story, true story. A robber who broke into a business, a taekwondo studio, with a taekwondo master practicing. I mean, that's what's happening in this psalm. Sometimes the flesh, it can't see past itself enough to get a grip on reality. So it is when one sets oneself against God. That's that level of insanity. In verses 7 and 9 now, a third speaker is going to weigh in on this. And it's going to be the cry of victory. 
he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now here's the voice of God's king. Uh, To to borrow the the term from verse 3, this is God's anointed. And again, what we want to do here is switch lenses back between King David who wrote this and how he's interpreting his events, and then King Jesus, how this applies to him as well. I mean, you can hear on one hand how this is King David, and then on the other how it's Jesus. I think the best way to understand this cry of victory is by seeing each each verse here as really a fulfillment of the decree of verse 7. So to break that down, the king's going to tell of the decree of the Lord. In verse 7, God decreed the king. In verse 8, God decreed the inheritance. And then in verse 8, God, or excuse me, verse 9, God decreed a victory. And again, we're going to move these lenses back and forth. In verse 7, God decreed the king. Now for King David, this came through a man named Samuel. We're reading that in 1 Samuel right now. Samuel comes along and he sees David's David's oldest brother, he looks the part. He should be king. Well, he's not. These um, next younger brothers, they probably a great second option. None of them were. But David gets the call, and he gets the call to come be king while tending sheep. Remember, it's that horn of oil. Poured right down David. And this, by the way, is a good reminder that God works in steps. Sometimes in our lives, God does things, and it's like an escalator ride, right? This is where we are today. We know we need to get here. It's a nice, smooth ride. We're there immediately, flawlessly. But other times, God is working in our lives. It's no escalator. It's those old, crookedy steps. It's like holding on to a railing, and the steps are moving, and it's two feet, and then you're waiting. And you're waiting on the Lord, and waiting on the Lord, then it's two more steps, and you're wondering, like, I'm even on the right staircase. That's a great reminder from the life of David, and even the life of Jesus, that God often works slowly in steps. David, after he's anointed king, he's still going to serve King Saul. To say it another way, he's still going to deal with Saul. David's hiding in caves. David's going to need to flee his enemy. Eventually, the complete installation as king will come. But God's working in steps. And God did this with Jesus. Herod, right from the get-go, he feared the kingship of Jesus. I mean, the, the surrounding countryside was shaken up because of his paranoia. The Magi will come and honor him while he's young. Pilate will ask him at the end of his life, so you are a king, to which Jesus replies, you say correctly. In many ways, the complete fulfillment here, it's a process. One step at a time. And notice the word used to describe this in verse 7. Today I have begotten you. It's going to be a familiar word for us, but it's important that you and I as Bible-believing Christians understand what it means when the Bible uses this word, begotten. Because the word begotten can mean born. 
Because begotten can mean created. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is the only one directly created by God. The only one begotten of God. Just switching out some meanings there. That means that Jesus isn't eternal and he's not God. But when the Bible speaks about Jesus being begotten, it's going to refer to a special relationship and not procreation. That's the important distinction to make. That's the truth to latch onto in our apologetics. When the Bible speaks about Jesus being begotten, it refers to a special relationship. Jesus has eternally existed as God. The Bible calls him God's son. It does that to help us, not to teach us that he was created at some point. It's underscoring the close relationship. In other words, they are so close. They share the same essence. They share the same nature. God the Father, Jesus the Son. So God has established his king, and God has decreed his king. In verse 8, God has decreed his inheritance. Using our lenses, we can consider this for David and Jesus. In verse 8, notice what he does. He invites the king to ask for his inheritance. That's an awkward conversation. I mean, just think about the parable son who went knocking on dad's door for his inheritance early. But it's also true in verse 8 that God invites it. Doesn't he? He says, ask of me, and I will give it. (laughs) The irony here, again, we're coming back to this, is that in these first few verses, the nations here, as they say in Texas, they're hotter than a billy goat in a pepper patch in summer. And they're fuming and they're steaming. They're so angry at God. And what are they doing? They're failing to realize that they themselves belong to God. And that God's going to do with them even as he wills. He's going to give them to his king. And using our two lenses, we can see how this is true for King David. God gave him, I believe, if I remember correctly, the largest territory that Israel has ever enjoyed. I think the Jews would call David's reign the golden era of the nation. It went from the desert near Egypt to the Euphrates River. One estimate placed Israel at the time of David about three times the size it is today. But switching lenses over to Jesus, God has given him the deed, but has yet to give him the fullness of it. Remember, working in steps. We might even say that that what we have today in miniature, God is going to really bless in full through Jesus. Just to give you an example, today we have Jerusalem. It's about 50 square miles. But Revelation speaks of a new Jerusalem, 1,400 miles, possibly a cube. You can read 21 and try to figure that out in Revelation. But this, it's this enormous, perfected city. It's the fullness come. Another example would be the world in which we live today. We live in a world of division. The nations, in fact, are in an uproar. But Revelation also teaches that there's a time coming when all the nations are going to walk by the light given of that new Jerusalem. Revelation speaks of kings of the earth bringing their glory into this city. It's really a marvelous thought to consider. So here's this inheritance, but the fullness of it is yet to come. And verse 9, thirdly, then, God decreed a victory. For David, 2 Samuel chapter 8, 
It's going to list many victories that King David achieved. David's conquests were blessed by God. The historic enemies like the Philistines and the Moabites, David conquers them. And then for Jesus, for Christ the King, Revelation predicts an immense victory in a battle that is yet to come. Just to give you a little bit of background on on this term here, breaking with iron or shattering like earthenware, Alan Ross in his commentary gives us a really interesting image to consider. You know, in the the days in which this was written, uh, the pharaohs of Egypt would have their pagan temple, and inside their pagan temple they would arrange small earthenware, little like votive kind of vases. And on each of these, they would put a different name for a different city that they, that they ruled. And the tradition was that, that if the Pharaoh became upset, he would, would smash these jars in that temple in the presence of his God. It was a, um, a very vivid way to display the, the judgment he would bring upon these cities as he grew angry with them. I say all that because it's some imagery to illustrate the power that God has over these small nations that rage. That they are set up and he will shatter them like earthenware to borrow from this psalm. Well, there's one final speaker in our text today, and this is in verses 10 through 12. some debate about who this speaker would be compared to the other three speakers, but we know that it's a proclamation of invitation. In verse 10, the invitation is given, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is a remarkably gracious offer, isn't it? Just consider that offer in light of what we've read. In light of verse 1, these nations raging against God. In light of verse 2, rulers plotting together. In light of verse 3, this sweeping rejection of his reign, I would expect there would be no quarter and no mercy given to them. But the Lord gives them opportunity. In light of the reign of his king, in light of all that he is going to do, the psalmist says, wake up. Show discernment while there's time. Notice the call in verse 11 is to worship the Lord with reverence and to rejoice with trembling. And a worship is to simply give the honor to God that is due God. Some of your Bibles read, serve the Lord with reverence. As we consider God's power in this psalm, Lord willing, it provokes a a healthy respect and a healthy fear within us. And David writes something Interesting as well. With that, he says, rejoice with trembling. Interesting words to put side by side. I think what he's driving at here is that that our joy as we rejoice at who Jesus is, it ought to be accompanied by a humility as well. The big push of this closing passage is verse 12. 
Your Bibles are going to read either do homage to the Son or kiss the Son. The invitation here is, is to humble oneself before Jesus Christ. To say it another way, to bow the knee before his kingship. Now this is a limited invitation that's given here today. This is an invitation that is not open-ended. It is not open forever. Today, it is a grace and forgiveness that God offers. If you will come and submit to his rule, this is what God offers. But look at verse 12. Tomorrow, tomorrow it is anger and it is wrath. That is to all who do not come to him today. The picture is is of a massive army about to destroy a city. They are right up at the walls. They are right up at the gates. And they sent a delegate in to make peace with the owner of that city, to kiss his ring, so to speak. And if this is you this morning, if you have not yet come and made Jesus king, I invite you to please do so today while there's time. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know how long we will live. But the invitation is to come to Jesus, to kiss the ring. This hand of Jesus that he offers you, it is not a heavy hand. This is not a hand that holds you down. The hand of Jesus is not a a hand of oppression. The hand of Jesus bears a large, round scar. And it's meant as a reminder of his sacrifice made for you that he died on the cross for your sin. And it's a constant reminder of his love for us and the sacrifice he made for you and I. This is an invitation to come and take refuge in Christ from Christ. The four speakers of Psalm 2 this morning challenged the nations. They challenged the nations of the world to tread lightly. Certainly this psalm would best be read in places like the United Nations or in places like the World Economic Forum. In places, sadly, it will never be heard because they are the nations of verses 1, 2, and 3. So then we ask, how does this apply to you and I? How does this apply to me this morning? In the book of Joshua, in chapter 2, the people of Canaan are confronted by the power of God. It seems as though almost everyone knows about it. Word on the street is that God reigns. The earthenware shattered by a rod of iron in Egypt. It's almost as though there's some fresh smoke from Exodus still rising up in the rearview mirror of Israel as they arrive outside Canaan. And there's a woman there named Rahab. And she says to a couple of God's people, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Rahab knew about the God of Psalm 2. And she had, in this moment, to choose her alliance. Who's she going to side with? Is she going to remain with the Canaanite kings of her land who seemed still quite powerful at this time? 
Or would she side with the one true God? And I think, in a way, that's our takeaway today. That's a question for each of us this morning. Who is our ally? Who do we ally with? Do we ally with those who stand in opposition to God? And I'm not talking this morning about the Satanist or the atheist. All of those, we get it. We understand that. I'm talking about anyone who doesn't bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Are they our close counselor? Are they our ally? And if they are, what does that say about you and I? Or do we ally with the king? With the Lord Jesus Christ, with God's anointed Because if we rejoice with reverence, if we worship with trembling, I contend that we are on the right side of history, protected from his anger and shielded from his wrath. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the king. And you are our king. You are powerful and you are mighty. And the fullness of your reign and your rule we will one day see. We pray that in the meantime, as the nations rage, we would not grow disheartened. We would not forget that you are the king. And we would not forget that you are on the throne. And that we would not forget that we belong to you. I pray for us this season as we see the world around us and perhaps grow discouraged. Oh, Father, remind us of the power of your Son and the plan you have to bring us together with him. We love you and praise you for your plans. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.